seems appropriate to begin with the question, um, are we remembering the most important thing? (laughs) It's interesting how much resistance we can feel. Um, I think my experience, it's at least at times, it's a strong resistance, maybe even fear, of sincerity. We, we just much prefer, at least at moments, much prefer to be superficial. And uh, you see, superficiality is a defense, like a strategy to avoid pain. All of us, all organisms, simple organisms, more complicated organisms like humans, we all want to avoid discomfort. And uh, one strategy that has serious implications is superficiality. And so when we hear a teaching or we're inspired to remember the most important thing to even... Like uh, Caleb asked in the small group today, you know, even like, like why be interested in release? Why are we interested in, like, is that even a necessary construction to, in the mind to have this idea that there's an important thing? You may maybe have noticed in your lives um, that uh, we don't, you know, we humans don't like to have the boat rock. So when one of our friends gets uh, into something like mindfulness meditation, you know, it can be a pain in the butt because uh, then we have to think, we have to consider, like, was there something there that's relevant for me? It's like their interest, their success, their getting benefit challenges our status quo. I mean, even, you know, in silly ways this happens. Like somebody starts eating chia seeds. I don't know if you've heard about these amazing tiny little seeds that evidently have great protein. Now you see them in the co-ops, health food stores. I think... I've gotten several bags at Christmas time from different people. <laughs> Got a couple in my freezer. Waiting for when I get my act together and do the right thing and make smoothies, you know, that grind those little seeds up and, you know, put some flax seeds in and other really good things. So it's, uh, you know, the more we hear about what might be good for us, it's like, oh, want to hear about how to take care of myself because then I I feel like I have to be I have to show up and consider like is it okay what I'm doing is there a better way am I okay with the implications of my lifestyle my choices so tonight I want to talk about uh not just remembering the most important thing, but the the different identities that get in the way. You know, we 
like the identity of superficiality, not that we'd ever necessarily call it that, but uh, it is an identity that we fall into and feel comfortable in. And a lot of these identities are sort of different strategies of making effort, different ways of making effort in life generally and specifically different ways of making effort in our spiritual lives. And consider, you know, what is the appropriate or what is the skillful way of using effort, of uh, committing and applying ourselves to the task at hand that's enlivening and liberating. Thich Nhat Hanh, this wonderful Vietnamese teacher, says, Silence is something that comes from your heart, not from outside. Silence doesn't mean not taking and not doing things. It means that you are not disturbed inside. If you are silent, then no matter what situation you find yourself in, you can enjoy the silence. So when we hear teachings like that about the silence, about peace, about the refuge, about the unshakable release of the heart. Now just notice what your mind does. Because you might have a reaction like, uh, you may not want to say it out loud, but I just don't want to hear about it. Like we use it to beat ourselves up. Because we don't know what they're talking about. Like, what do they mean, peace? What do they mean, ease? The unshakable release of the heart. Or maybe if you're greedy type, kind of have a different approach. It really comes down to appreciating this one place where, you know, we can intervene in this process of life that's unfolding here. In a lot of ways, you know, it's appropriate to see this life, this experience, this somebody, me, being swept along. But we don't want to fall entirely into that. That's just true to a degree, being swept along by causes and conditions. So we don't want to completely fall into that, although there's some truth to that. And we don't want to fall into the other view where we feel completely responsible. If our knee hurts, it's my fault. If I'm doing well, it's because I'm doing well. And we, just by paying attention, we want to begin to see the one place that in this moment we can intervene. You know, sort of the one card we have to play. And it really has to do with how we're paying attention 
and what we're paying attention, what we're choosing to pay attention to. So, in a way, you may think you're responsible for a lot of things, bringing your kids up, saving for their college, or being a responsible partner to your partner. You know, on you know, on a conventional level, we have we feel like we have a lot of responsibilities, save for retirement. that most of those stories, most of the time, are distractions. Because what we're really responsible for, and the only thing we can be responsible for, is a here and now. What are we paying attention to, and how are we, how are we paying attention to that? And is that thing we're paying attention to, and the way we're paying attention to it, is it skillful? Is it releasing? Or is it entangling? There's a well-known discourse. Some of you know this story, but the Buddha, um, some younger monks came to the Buddha and were talking about this amazing monk that always practiced alone. He didn't like to walk into the town with other monks he wanted to walk alone to get his food. They get up early and they walk into the nearest village and they collect alms this, with their bowl, their begging bowl, so to speak. And they just stand there, chant. And if somebody comes out and puts food in the bowl, they receive it. If nobody comes out and puts food in their bowl, they walk on to the next place. They stay for a few seconds, see if anybody comes out, keep going on like that. And this person really was into being secluded. And the younger monks were really impressed with him and told the Buddha. And the Buddha said, that's one way to live a secluded life. But there's a better way. Why don't you ask that senior monk to come visit? So he did, and those other younger monks were there. And uh, he taught them a better way to live alone. That's how Thich Nhat Hanh translates this uh, Sutta from the Pali Canon, from the Discourses of the Buddha. I will teach you what is meant by knowing the better way to live alone. I will begin with an outline of the teaching and then give a detailed explanation. Practitioners, please listen carefully. Blessed one, we are listening. And the Buddha taught... Do not pursue the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has not yet come. Looking deeply at life as it is, in the very here and now, the practitioner dwells in stability and freedom. We must be diligent today. To wait until tomorrow is too late. Death comes unexpectedly. How can we bargain with it? The sage calls a person who knows how to dwell in mindfulness night and day one who knows the better way to live alone. So what the Buddha is saying, I think, here is that it's so easy to get um, attached to more superficial aspects of the path, like living alone or acting serene, 
acting calm and tranquil, putting on that affect as we move about the retreat. You know, don't you have that feeling sometimes? Like you're storming down the hallway, and then you see somebody who's not walking quite as fast, and you're, oh yeah. It's almost like you remember, oh yeah, there's a competition here. Who can look <laughs> like they're on retreat? And I realized I wasn't doing so well, but now I kind of got, I got the agenda. I'm back on track. I'll play the game. You know, I'll sort of be the ideal retreatant until I forget again, and then somebody will remind me, and then I'll come back and, and we fall into this. It's not, it's neither good nor bad. It's just typical for all of us to, uh, do this thing we call retreating in a superficial way. Just getting by. Just sort of playing the game or acting the role that we think fits this container. And so it, you know, it's appropriate to have a sense of humor and forgiveness, compassion around this. It's actually, you know, in the, in a lot of the discourses, these instructions about, uh, you know, orienting around the experience of release. The fact is, if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of the time, and maybe even all of the time, we don't really know what release is. In sort of traditional, more technical Buddhist terms, we really don't know what release is until the first stage of awakening. You know, in Theravada Buddhism, there are four stages of waking up. And in a way, according to the system, and it makes a lot of sense to me, although it's a little disturbing to think about it. We don't really know what the path is until we've entered the path, entered the stream. That's the first stage of awakening, entering the stream, falling into the stream. Sort of a profound experience of losing, dropping the sense of self-centeredness. That's what that means, that insight. And so then at that point it said, You know, that doubt is eliminated from the mind. Doubt about this thing we call self. The mind still knows how to construct a sense of self because it's, you know, that pattern of, that mental pattern of constructing a sense of a me to whom the experience relates or refers to. And that's a well-greased, well-practiced habit. So it keeps happening. But now, with a deep insight, and just my sense of it is, we have this insight many times, and at some point there's a tipping point where, where doubt no longer arises about this insight. So, because I know what everyone's doing right now. <laughs> like, well, have I had any of this, in, this insight? What's he talking about? Where am I? This is what our kind of normal 
ego-based mind does. It just wants to place itself in some kind of spectrum and know whether I'm good or bad, kind of in between, better than or worse than, on the right path, not on the right path, destined for hell, destined for glory. (laughs) It's really good to talk about it in this way because to talk about it in this way is sort of bringing some light or space around these ego-based patterns. They're just ego-based patterns, or they're just patterns arising, mental patterns arising out of wrong view, the sense of separation, the sense of there being a very separate self apart from everything else, who very much wants to be special, or very much wants to be saved, or something like that. And in Buddhism, the Buddha calls this wrong view, self-view. So this awakening moment is when, or the awakening moments, I should say, insights, it's when this wrong view gets undermined, weakened, until there's a point where it's so weakened that it's very hard for the mind to be completely fooled by the experience of self, by the normal habitual constructions of self-identity. It's there because of the momentum and habit, but the mind knows it's there. It knows, oh yeah, that's that sense of self, which is just a mental construction, a very seductive, but still just a mental construction that arises lawfully due to causes and conditions, and it's not anything more than what it appears to be now, which is this construction as if there is this thing separate apart from everything else. So, release in the real sense is the mind released from the strong conviction of separation. That's what, that's the release we're talking about. Or when we say space, or silence of the mind, space of the heart, freedom of the heart, peace of the heart. We're talking about the peace of a mind not fixed on the notion of separation, not fixed on the notion of a separate self, permanent separate self apart. So, now, even without stream entry, we human beings have this experience. We just don't understand the experience. Right? You can go on a roller coaster and the, uh, the intensity of the experience so fills the mind that for a few moments, not everyone, but for a few moments, the mind forgets to construct a sense of separation, a sense of this is happening to me and I don't like it, or this is happening to me and I'm liking it. It's just such an intense experience. The mind has moments of just experiencing without the secondary activity of constructing the sense of a somebody to whom the experience is happening. That's why we like to do intense things, like go to Valley Fair and go down the roller coaster, or fall in love is an intense thing for some people, right? That's why we like to fall in love, because we can lose that sense of separation in moments doing that. Or are doing other dangerous things or exciting things. Or 
So we want to have um, some appreciation that the experience of release, you know, it's it's not something probably we have perfect confidence in. Maybe we have a deepening confidence. Maybe we have some intuition, some appreciation. But it's okay. Because what we do have a lot of confidence in is the non-release of the heart. Right? We're pretty, you know, we're right up there as experts. <laughs> if we're, if we're just willing to draw on our experience. Like, just imagine if we had a resume with all our contracted experience listed. You know, on, in May 2011, you know, I had this incredibly contracted experience where I had a very strong sense of self and it was congealed around this point of view, you know, and these other people being wrong or these other people being right and me being wrong, right? But it was very congealed. And that's my experience. And I know that experience as being not helpful. Dukkha, suffering. So we have a lot Right? As practitioners, we've realized clearly many, many times the non-release of the heart. More than we've had very clear, resonant, transforming experience of the release of the heart. We've seen the non-release of the heart. See it as it actually is, meaning seeing the unproductiveness of it. Seeing the that it doesn't go anywhere, that it's not self, that it's not actually me. It's there. It's sticky. I don't know how to uproot the tendency to identify with it, but there's enough space in the mind, enough wisdom present to know that this identity of being bad, being better than, being confused, or whatever we're identified, whatever that sense of self is built around, there's some sense that it ain't the truth. It ain't the whole truth, at least. And maybe even a deeper sense in moments, you know, that that it's just a house of cards waiting to fall. Wanting it to fall is not the cause for it to implode. But with more and more practice, there's a sense of the tenuousness or the ephemeral nature of all of our dramas. The dramas are still there. You know, I've got some dramas going on in my life. And, uh, but they're just, you know, right there with the dramas is a, both a sense of humor, like how believable they are, even though I know it's not, they're not what they appear to be. How sticky and unpleasant they can be in moments when I know that that is just a sort of shimmering surface. And there's like this big space just beyond that shimmer shimmering surface of that drama, that problem, that seeming obstacle of my life, in my life. So I wanted to mention that so that, you know, we're not ashamed about uh, having times where, you know, like remembering the most important thing and just the whole thing about release just doesn't seem relevant. 
or importance. And and the fact is, we just want to make it to dinner time, or to the end of the retreat, you know, or we just don't want to embarrass ourselves. Or we just, you know, to be honest, I just want a nice experience. I, I'd really settle for just some, tra- a little tranquility in a sit. If I could just, you know, if that kink in my back could just release, I would be so happy. And it's like that. It's like what they do evidently when people are tortured. You know, they're willing to do anything just for that to end. And we're like that. It doesn't take much before we're like, I'll do anything to make that go away. The other reason I wanted to bring this up is so, uh, you know, we have to acknowledge the the place in life and in especially in spiritual practice for joy, we have to feel enlivened in the practice. And uh, when we feel lost or feel like, I don't know what I'm doing, then we can uh, feel a little bit dead, going through the motions. And the thing is, there are ways then to to reignite joy, to bring joy, to draw draw on joy. And it isn't like faking it, like pretending we know what releases. You see that sometimes where people are trying to whip up, froth up some excitement about freedom, about insight, about emptiness, instead of drawing on something that's more real, actually real in their experience. And that's the key, you know, that we go to a well that's actually a well, you know, a source that's actually a source, something that, in a sense, I know these words are a little confusing, but in a sense, we own it. It's available. Like we did this afternoon, for example, when we did the mudita, the appreciative joy practice. It's like this personality, as it's already wired, you know, as imperfect as our personalities are, these sort of, this bundle of psychological patterns that we call my personality, it's already capable of step, stepping outside of self-centered dramas and appreciating myself, appreciating others, appreciating what's beautiful. It's already capable of that. And to the degree that I orient around the practice of of appreciating what's good, then I step outside of, I get some freedom from, the oppressive, afflictive states of mind. And I notice, to some degree, the experience of release in a very real, authentic way. The mind is less oppressed with negativity, with greed, anger, and delusion, as we say in the Buddhist tradition. Simply 
by systematically directing the attention toward the experience of appreciation, toward gratitude, toward joy. And so this this is really the appropriate level to take up this practice of remembering the most important thing, not to get idealistic about it, but to keep banking or coming back to what we actually know. Like, the Buddha is very clear about this, like, the path begins, there's no path until a human being has enough stability, enough steadiness of attention to begin to discern the difference between what is skillful and what is unskillful. So until we have the wherewithal to be able to say to ourselves that appreciating the goodness in myself and others is absolutely skillful. I see it directly in my, in the experience of my body and mind. Or the opposite, you know, practicing being stingy or practicing being negative, we can see it in our bones. This is not helpful. I don't, doesn't matter if everybody in the room tells me if this is actually, no, 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 it's good. I don't care if the whole world felt otherwise, because I've seen it. I know that the actual activity of being stingy or being negative, being mean, I know it's not helpful. It's like if you took a balloon and kept going in one direction and ended up in the same place you began, it wouldn't matter if the rest of the world thought the place was flat. You know, you knew. You went all the way around. There were no edges. And it's that's what we mean by confidence. Like confidence in release. Confidence in the unconditioned, we say in Buddhism. Confidence and emptiness, the space of freedom. That the freedom isn't something you have to do something good in order to get. It's actually the very nature of here and now. It's just unseen or misperceived, forgotten. And so the real work of practice is this sincere, you know, from wherever we are, that's where we begin, you know, so this sincere uncovering of what we already know to be true to some degree. We're following our nose. And of course, it's always this, this, uh, un- I don't know, unfortunate, it's just the way it is, but this challenging chicken-egg phenomena, like how can we trust, have confidence and release when we don't have full confidence in the experience of release? But we don't have any choice but to begin with where we're at, you know, with whatever experience. All we have is our experience. And then that experience arises right here in this moment, right? Whatever wisdom, whatever understanding, whatever mistakes and that I've learned, I could learn from, that all arises and it informs this moment. And then the only thing I play in this moment is what I'm going to pay attention to and how I'm going to pay attention to it. 
This is the playing field. You know, for a practitioner, it comes down to what am I going to pay attention to and how am I going to pay attention to it? a nice article um, probably over 10 years old uh, from Christina Feldman one of the senior teachers in this tradition insight meditation tradition coming out of Theravada Buddhism she was one of the co-founders of IMS and founders of Gaia House in England and this was an insight journal a while back making a joyful effort. She says here, meditation is never meant to be approached as an ordeal, a grim task of chipping away at a rock face. The Buddha once said that this path is a path of happiness that leads to the highest happiness, which is peace. Some people, when they hear that, think he's talking about everybody but them. A little later, she says, it takes effort for all of us to get up in the morning, to raise a child, to bring things we dream of into fulfillment. It takes perseverance. It takes effort for you to come to the meditation center and to actually engage with the meditation hour after hour, to take one step after another in walking meditation, when inwardly there can be countless voices encouraging you to flee, to be elsewhere. This, too, takes effort. It takes effort to sit with ourselves in stillness during times that are not always easy when part of us knows there are countless other things, more gratifying things that we could be doing at that moment. We look at all the journeys we make in our life and the pervading theme in all of these journeys is that they ask for efforts. I remember, and she she kind of makes the same point a little later, But I remember, I think Joseph Goldstein joking once that uh, it's pretty easy to make meditation teachers. You just have to train them to say one thing. Can you be mindful of that? (laughs) So whatever, whenever a student comes to you and says, like, this is going on, and you just, can you be mindful of it? (laughs) No, I can't. Well, can you be mindful of that? I really feel like quitting. Well, can you be mindful of that? I'm leaving. Okay, but can you be mindful of that? (laughs) She puts it in terms of like, uh, you know, the only thing we need to remember is showing up to show up. We just need to keep showing up. And it's actually not that different than remembering the most important thing. Because showing up means that there's some sense of possibility. The possibility of a more full and complete release. 
And this is actually important because, you know, for those of you who've been practicing for a while and have had some success in, in your practice, you know, one of the things that begins to creep in, almost like it's bad, is uh, ease. <laughs> and we get complacent. We start to feel better. Our life starts to work better. We know how to handle the ups and downs of life, what in Buddhism we call the eight worldly winds, gain and loss, pain and pleasure, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. We're not surprised like when people don't like us because we know, well, that happens sometimes. And we're not uh, confused by pleasant states and we're not confused by unpleasant states. It's really one of the telltale signs of people who've meditated a while. They can come to a small group and say, God, I'm just going through hell. And it's like they have a smile on their face, like, yeah, and that's how it is. You know, it's amazing how hellish it is, how difficult it is. It's really, and there's like a curiosity, like, how amazingly difficult the experience of the body and the mind is. How much it seems like it's never going to end. Because they know it will end. They've been there before. They're just not surprised by it. Because they know that all of us are existing in these eight worldly winds. And we're not in control of how far the wind blows us into pain or into pleasure or into fame or into disrepute or people loving us or people hating us. Because we basically understand that everything's at play. You know, that we're not in charge of the winds that are sort of blowing our life here and there. We imagine that some of the time. We think we're responsible. But, you know, more and more with practice, we just see how things get blown around. It can hopefully undermine any arrogance, you know, coming from a lot of us from privileged backgrounds. You know, it can really take the wind out of our sails, like whatever ease, whatever confidence, whatever success I have, it's like so not personal. <laughs> it's so easy to think it's personal, you know. But like, uh, it's not personal at all that we were born into a certain place, we came in contact with these teachings, we weren't overwhelmed by physical illness and discomfort or poverty or racial oppression or this or that, you know, that we had the good fortune, one thing after another that allows us to practice like this or whatever sort of success we experience in life. And it, it also creates an, an immunity for all the difficulties that arise because we know that that's how it is sometimes and it's not personal. And even if the difficulty is that we're just not intelligent enough to handle a situation. That that's not personal either. That we lack competence that other people seem to have. Or that we lack spiritual um, abilities or spiritual insight that other people seem to have or calm that other people seem to have or emotional maturity that other people seem to have. It just seems so personal. But then we realize it's not personal. It's been uh, so great, you know, just being in this role, um, teaching and 
it's so great to see how, uh, you know, the comparing mind. Seeing teachers that just seem to have so much more fluency, so much more understanding, seem to be able to manifest so much more ease and general well-being, kindness, and just brightness. And it's just, uh, it can, you know, it's already a bit of a setup to be sort of in front of a room of people teaching about spirituality because, you know, it's like, it, it highlights, as you might imagine, some of you know, it really highlights all the imperfections, all the ways that the personality is uh, still orbiting around self-centered dramas, around contracted states, ways of being. And it really sort of forces one to say, or to understand, like, well, is that personal? Like, if any wisdom that I say is personal, then how does it make sense that that person also does this other thing? It doesn't. But if the, you know, whatever wise things comes out of this mouth, if that's just an expression of particular causes and conditions that are here in this moment, then in other moments when the activity is, you know, not as skillful, that's also not personal. That's just what's being expressed coming out of those causes and conditions. In a lot of ways, you know, in this very thin place of the present moment. And it's nice, it's always nice to reflect how thin or ephemeral, like, uh, that uh, teaching from the Buddha that I read earlier tonight on the better way to live alone. You know, dropping the past, because the past does not exist in any real way dropping any thoughts, any ideas about the future, because it doesn't exist either. It hasn't come yet. It's literally not out there somewhere. It doesn't exist until it's here. And then as soon as it's here, it's already on the way out. Out, out. Like a fire goes out. It doesn't exist in the past. There's no past anywhere. So in this very thin, ephemeral place of the present moment, We want to um, sort of mine the wisdom, the understanding, or the cumulative experience that's showing up. Because this, whatever this is that's showing up in this moment, this very thin, ephemeral moment, it's exactly what's left over from the past. 
where else would the past be stored but right here and now? Is there any other storage unit that you paid for somewhere where your little tendencies or, you know, good karma, bad karma is stored? There is no other place but here and now for the tendencies of the mind, for the cumulative wisdom. It's here. In this very ephemeral, thin, alive place. And as I was saying before this teaching of the Buddha, I was going to read this sutta, but I think I'll just paraphrase it. You know, where he talks about, in terms of internal conditions or internal supports, there is nothing more beneficial than appropriate attention. There is nothing more powerful in human existence in terms of your internal conditions than appropriate attention. And nothing more dangerous than inappropriate attention. Like what the mind is attending to and how it's attending. So this is why, you know, this connects to remembering the most important thing. The possibility of the heart's release. Or understanding the uh, unnecessariness of the heart's contraction. See, we don't want to grow accustomed to dukkha, to stress, as if, you know, what kind of attitude is that when we're willing to just bear or accept fear or loneliness or as if not, not, I'm not talking about being mindful of it. I'm talking about locked into it. In that contracted state of being the one who's lonely and all the implications of that identity. Or being the one who's angry. Being the one who can't be happy until this happens in my life. All of those small little boxes, little holes we fall into. So life has taught us quite a bit and it all shows up in this moment and expresses itself by what we do with the mind. What the mind notices and the attitude or the view from which or with which it knows what it knows. And you can start to... um, categorize the teachings accordingly. There's a fun story that um, Christina tells in this, one of my favorite little meditation stories. A little boy is talking to his mother. Mom, imagine you're surrounded by a herd of hungry tigers. I didn't know tigers go in herds, but surrounded by a herd of hungry tigers all wanting to devour you. What's it like? You can just imagine this, you know, mother and son, mom's tucking the son into bed. Maybe they have this time every night where they just talk and read stories. And 
you know how it is that we, as kids, even as adults, but as kids especially, it's like uh, we like to scare ourselves a little bit. You know, we'll imagine a scary story and then run over to our parents' bed or something like that. Big brother, big sister's bed to get comforted. So he asks the mom, what's that like as she's imagining that herd of hungry tigers wanting to devour her? What would you do? How would you feel? And the mother says, oh, I'd be terrified. I wouldn't know what to do. What would you do? You can just imagine a parent saying that. Like, what would you do? And the little boy has this great answer. I'd stop pretending. (laughs) And this is a little bit like how we begin to realize the experience of release. It's like in the moment, you know, as the past arrives as the moment, you know, and we're here with this moment and how we're relating, what we're seeing, what we're knowing, how we're knowing it. And in a way, one of the, one of the ways the past manifests in the present moment is a kind of poignant, like, been here, done this. Like how, like in that about to moment when one more time we're going to feel ashamed of ourselves. Or one more time we're gonna, you know, put on some heavy cloak, you know, some contracted state of mind. And there's this faint, uh, like, been here, done this. You know? It's like, how many times have I fallen into this defensive state? How many times have I fallen into this arrogant state? How many times have I felt unworthy? How many times... You know, do I want to strive to achieve to be better than? That's, that's a, see then, what are we relating to in the moment where we're noticing how familiar these tendencies of mind are? Because otherwise we get swept away by the tendency to be defensive or the tendency to be unworthy or the tendency to try hard to become somebody special. But the heaviness of it, you know, the the sort of almost robotic or mechanical, like being swept into it one more time. Like I see that, you know, in my you know, in my different close relationships, both at work and at home, you know, the tendency to fall into controlling my environment in order to feel safe. Like that deep, heavy cloak of chaos is dangerous. Now, that's a very unfortunate pattern because the whole world is chaos. So if I think chaos is dangerous... That means I'm always feeling endangered. Or I have to live it with delusion that it isn't chaotic. Both are heavy trips, you know, and unsustainable. I can't, 
organize the whole world and I can't stay in denial of the chaos everywhere I look. Just things happening due to causes and conditions with nobody in charge. So as we, you know, practice remembering the most important thing, it brings us to this very thin ephemeral place of the present moment. And we learn so much about how the heart, the mind shows up. The tendency, the way our mind keeps wanting to show up, the attitudes the mind keeps wanting to use simply because we've used them before. It's like, I know this tool. It's like that old joke, you know. If you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, you know. If you're an aversive person, if your strong habit is to be aversive, everything looks like a problem. If you're a greedy person, everything looks like something to get. If you're a deluded person, everything looks confusing. You know, these are the three personality types in Buddhism. You might just notice, you know, if you tend toward one of those three or you're perfectly balanced with greed, anger, and delusion. (laughs) And so then this story from this little boy, it's it's really nice, like we can stop pretending, you know, pretending that this way of seeing, this way of relating is the only way. And we're willing to enter this ambiguous state, like I'm not sure how I'm going to relate, but I know I'm not going to do that. That's what I know. I know I'm not just going to be defensive or unworthy or the one who's going to become somebody special, or whatever your particular trip is, being aversive or being greedy or being confused, being identified or caught, I know that. I'm not going to pretend anymore. And not pretending means we know that we don't know. That's that's actually the state of openness. And in a way, it has the taste or the fragrance of release, right? Because we're not taking the easy way. You know, the easy way is the hard way, or the hard way I don't know, I'm sure how it goes, but see. <laughs> but you know, the well worn way, the easy way, because of the habit energy, doesn't work. So we need, initially in practice, you know, we think about practice as a cliche, it's just going with the flow. But actually, going with the flow means to keep doing what we've always done and getting what we've always gotten, which is not what we want. Contract one more contracted state. And then we begin to mistrust the heart because we keep ending up in the same place. So then we start thinking, oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing. And we start falling into that trap of nihilism. Why bother? Why bother to look for release? Why bother to practice? I just keep falling back into the same hole. Often what we miss is we think we should go from certainty that's not working, like being certain that this is the way, but that just is a stressful state, leads to stressful states, that we should immediately go to some other thing that we're certain about. But maybe that's the problem itself, is the desire, the desire for certainty, or the, maybe better, the expectation for certainty. 
maybe what we have to gravitate toward or cultivate a taste for is ambiguity or uncertainty. Like we're certain that's not the way, that's our certainty. But we don't get any more certainty than that. That's not the way. Don't grasp that. Don't believe that. Stop pretending that that's the way. It's not the way. It's like, I have my own equivalent of this, you know, imagining tigers. It's like, uh, for years, before we bought our building in 2006 and started renovating it, you know, I'd imagine, first I imagined renovating our old building, where my wife and I now live, and, uh, you know, just endless ways of renovating it so that it could accommodate the center, you know, and, and all the, you know, unworkable things, like how could we renovate it and be acceptable by the city, zoning, building codes, you know. And it's like, I, I just pretend that we could do it, and then at some point I'd realize, I'm just going to stop pretending. And then the whole thing would fall apart. You know, it's like, I would just stop pretending that this is a workable thing. And then again, I'd go, pretend, pretend, imagining, imagining, and I'd drop it. Over and over and over. Until I stopped pretending, right? And then we realized, we got to look for another building. <laughs> and then it was the same thing with other buildings, you know. We'd see a building, it's not quite right, but I'd pretend that we could make it right. You know, until we'd stop pretending. Then we'd stop looking at that building. And we'd look at another building. You know, we'd start, go back to the search. And this is the thing. The Buddha says that suffering either leads to more suffering or it leads to search. This is sort of a place of innocence and openness and ambiguity and uncertainty. That's where we're a real seeker. So before the certainty of release, you know, stream entry, first stage of awakening, as it's called in this spiritual system, we have this place of don't know mind. Like willing, you know, in the Christian terms, willing to go into the wilderness. And this is a lot of what we experience, especially the first day of retreat. <laughs> you know, just a slog of feeling the re- residue of our weeks of going too fast, doing too much, drinking too much coffee, watching too much media, checking our emails too often. You know, and then all of a sudden, we're in this relatively quiet place, and then what we experience is the residual of everything the way we've been living. And here it is, with no distraction. And it can be a real mess, a real slog. And it can be really confused, like, why am I doing this? What is this about? What does that even mean, release? What would that even mean in the context of feeling the way I'm feeling now? But are we willing to just not go back to what we know doesn't work? Pretending, you know, pretending like... One of the things people do on retreats, I do on retreats, is like imagining going on a retreat and having a really great experience. It's like here we are on a retreat, <laughs> and we're imagining being on a different retreat, having really profound insights and being really free, and like having that bright countenance, you know, where the eyes sort of glow and the skin is just sort of radiant. And then it's like every muscle is released, 
So you sort of walk in with a kind of fluidity <laughs> that is unmistakable to the people around you. And, <laughs> and then hopefully we see that and we get a, a really heartfelt internal laugh. Like, oh, how crazy is that? Right? And we see like that, honey, that is not the way. Right? That is the beginning of release. Knowing what's not the way is where we have to start. And then we're willing to hang out in the place of not knowing, in the wilderness, in the uncertainty. Be sort of a newborn babe. You know, if you're ever around people when they're just born, it's amazing. I, you know, I haven't had a child, but I've been around a few. Uh, right after the birth and, you know, they're just so raw and sensitive and like, what the hell is this? And they don't even have language to formulate the question, you know? So it's like so exposed to sensation, to sense imprints and like no tools to organize the sense impressions or certainly limited tools to organize sense impressions. So we've done it before. <laughs> and, you know, from a Buddhist cosmological point of view, we've done it before countless times. You know, and in our sense, we've probably done it before. We've, we, where we've entered that very raw, exposed, undefined, unformed, ambiguous state. And we've learned to slowly to relax with it. And to not think of it as a problem. It's like, This is what I was born to do. Put down the known. Because it's not helpful right now. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.